chapter 21. We're going to look at the first eight verses today as we think about this very important question. All right, never We should never assume the gospel in our own lives or other people's lives. Very dangerous thing to do. So here's my question for you on the screen here. Where are you going? Where are you going? And I don't mean when we're done here. You know, I don't, I don't mean where are you going on holiday or, or anything like that. I mean more, the more important question. We're dealing with our eternity here. Where are we going in eternity? Well, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ alone, the Bible says you are on your way to heaven. Did you hear me? <laughs> I said the Bible says, God says, you are on your way to heaven if you have put your faith in Christ alone. So just think about that word heaven for a moment. It's a wonderful word. In fact, uh, just think about how we use that word. Uh, the very word itself is synonymous with beauty and comfort and peace, satisfaction and contentment. The adjective form of that particular word is, is used in our speech occasionally. For example, uh, we might say, that if, if we were cooking a roast for Sunday lunch, we might say, oh, that, that roast is heavenly. And it might be. Or we might uh, say as we're traveling around uh, New Zealand, uh, the scenery is heavenly. But there's, uh, there's another way we could use it. I don't know if you've heard of this particular flavor of ice cream that, uh, that I've experienced in the United States. It's called um, Heavenly Hash. That's an ice cream, right? <laughs> I'm starting to doubt myself here. But heaven, okay, the, the point in all of that is to get you to start thinking about heaven. But, but, but think about this, though. Heaven is far more than just an adjective, and heaven is far more than an attitude or an ice cream or anything like that. What we need to believe and really believe is that heaven is a real place. It is a place where people of God go after they die. And death is assured, unless Christ comes back first, but... Death is assured for us, for, for most people. And it is, the, it is the real place where the people of God go. Now, there's, there's often problems with biblical truth that uh, there's various pendulum swings and people get off, on, off the track, so to speak, oftentimes when it, in regarding to biblical truth. Even something like heaven. Human nature is really so tainted by the effects of sin that when we're left to our own instincts, we inevitably uh, corrupt spiritual truth, even something like the glorious truth we call heaven. For example, uh, people lacking a biblical perspective will think wrongly about heavenly things. Uh, for example, they'll either ignore the spiritual realm altogether. That's, that's one pendulum swing. Uh, sadly, that's probably where a lot of people are. They just... They don't even really think about the spiritual realm. You know, all they can think about is the here and now. Uh, but then there's some who uh, they choose instead to live, uh, you know, with, they're just absorbed in fantasies about the spiritual world, and in the process, they're also forfeiting spiritual truth. You know, you, you may have gone into people's homes and, and plastered everywhere this is angel stuff. <laughs> Little angel figurines, posters, and you name it. it you know, that sort of thing. There's people who are just so focused on the, 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 the spiritual realm, but it, 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 it becomes a fantasy world. It's not really real for some people. Well, Revelation 21 contains the Bible's most exhaustive description of the new heaven and the new earth. And uh, we've already talked uh, several weeks ago about the, the capital city of heaven, which, of course, is the new Jerusalem. But I want you to, to before we actually get into Revelation 21, let's, let's get caught up with the context here so we understand uh, where this passage fits into the context. All right, So the setting or the context is this. If you were to back up to chapter 19, which you don't need to, but if you were, you'd find in 19, the battle of Armageddon has been fought. 
Jesus Christ comes back and he destroys his enemies, wipes them out. And then in chapter 20, we have the earthly millennial reign of Christ, which uh, is for 1,000 years. And, of course, that eventually comes to an end after the 1,000 years. And then the end of Revelation 20 is, is all about the great white throne judgment, which is, by the way, it's for unbelievers. It is uh, the time when Satan will, will finally be sentenced and he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that will be his, his final doom. But it's also a time when unbelievers will be uh, taken by uh, God and thrown into the lake of fire. And then we see at the beginning of Revelation 21, the whole universe will be dissolved. It will, uh, God will destroy the universe. And then, and then we see him, he, ha- he will make everything new. It will be made perfect. So that's the context of what we're talking about here. So... Um, having said that, we, we need to understand uh, the process by which the current universe is going to be destroyed and all things will be made new. And, and God talks about that in 2 Peter chapter 3. There's a picture on, of, of the earth being destroyed. But uh, keep your finger here and look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Please make sure you're in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, we have uh, God's description of the destruction of heaven and earth here. Look at, let's start reading in verse 3. Verse 3. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But... By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." or reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I hope you're doing what verse 13 says. I hope you are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth. As God says, there will be one day. So, if you're not there already, turn back to Revelation 21. And we will see from Revelation 21, there are uh, six features of the final and eternal heaven. Six features of the final and eternal heaven, which we call the new heaven and the new earth. In verse 1, we see the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth. Look at uh, Revelation 21, verse 1. It says this, and uh, John's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He sees what God shows him, and here's what he says. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Let's just stop there for a moment, because... It's a rather short description that we have here. Notice the word new. Did you notice the new word? Uh, There's the word new, new earth, new heaven. Now, don't think of that in a chronological sense. 
It's not talking about uh, a time event there. It's talking about quality. The word new there is talking about a new in quality. It's a qualitative sense. The new heaven and the new earth will be something, in other words, God's saying here, it's something brand new. It's fresh. It's something that's never been seen before. And notice first that, God's, uh, uh, that God must create everything new here. Why? Because the first heaven and the first earth are gone. They're gone, he says. They've passed away, he says there in verse 1. God, and by the way, why does God have to destroy this present earth? Why? Why does he need to do that? Well, as the scripture tells us, it's because this earth is corrupted by sin. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, everything has been corrupted by sin. In fact, look what it says here on the screen in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 19. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And still does, by the way. So all of creation is groaning. It's it's under the curse of sin, and it is awaiting its freedom from that curse. And one day God will set it free. So what are the new heaven and the new earth going to be like? Well, we, frankly, we don't have a lot of description here. But one thing verse 1 does say, interestingly enough, it says, There will no longer be any sea, no oceans and seas. Now, that's a big change from our present earth, isn't it? Um, by the way, go back to that other one there. Um, uh, coming from AnswersInGenesis.org, you'll see, um, you'll see originally God created the perfect world. In fact, God said it was very good. The only thing bad about it was that, in, that Adam didn't have a helpmate. He didn't have a wife, so God gave him a wife. But in Genesis 3, we, uh, we call that the fall. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, uh, the whole world is, is corrupted. And so we see that, that at the moment, the, the earth is under this curse of sin, but one day God's going to restore it. So it started with perfection, and it will end with perfection. But at the moment, we see that there is, is sea. And I've given you a picture here of the earth from, from outer space. <clears throat> Someone has said, uh, many people have said, the earth is approximately 95% water. So at, at the moment, uh, that's the way it is, 95% water. So there's going to be a, a, a vast difference, a vast change, if you will. Because God says there in Revelation 21, verse 1, that the sea was no more. The sea was no more. And even think about this for a moment. All life is dependent on water for, for its survival. All life is that way. Uh, even, uh, even your own body needs a lot of water. For example, your blood is made of approximately 90% water. Your flesh is made of approximately 65% water. Animals need water. Plants need water. Everything needs water. Well, not everything, but life needs water, okay? But in heaven, just think about this, in heaven, a believer's glorified body apparently will not require water anymore. That's interesting. You're not going to require food either. We'll talk about that in a moment. So it's a big change anyway. It's interesting that God would put that there in verse 1. Well, as we move on to verse 2, we see the capital of the new heaven and the new earth. This holy city, the new Jerusalem, it says. Look what John says. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So John's moving from this little short description, verse 1, to the capital city of the eternal state we call heaven. And uh, there's, there's someone's idea of, of what the new Jerusalem, the capital city, looks like as it comes down from heaven. 
By the way, some doubt that this is an actual city. Uh, I personally, I think that's kind of silly and foolish to say that because the new Jerusalem is, is not heaven. Well, why would God talk about this capital, talk about this city, heaven's capital, if, 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 it's, if there is no literal city? It's not synonymous with heaven because uh, in, in chapter 21 here, God actually gives the dimensions of this particular city. And we know heaven is far bigger than the dimensions that are given here in this chapter. So it's a literal city, and it's the capital of heaven. The New Jerusalem, notice in verse 2 there, is called the holy city. Why is it called holy city? It's called holy because the citizens and everyone who is in this city is holy. They're finally holy. Being part of holy is not is being sinless. No sin in heaven. So the concept here, by the way, of a city, just think about that. City is supposed to include relationships, supposed to include activities, responsibilities, unity, communion, and cooperation. Uh, unlike the the cities that are on planet earth at the moment, the perfect people in this city, the new Jerusalem, are going to live and they're going to work together in harmony and communion. You're not going to have any war, neighbor wars or that sort of thing going on like, like we have today. So it's a beautiful place. And notice where the city comes from. Look what God says. Where does it come from? It comes down from heaven. That's what he says. And so the implication is that this place already exists, or at least it's, it's certainly going to exist by this time. Um, and so when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, the, this new Jerusalem, it says, will descend into the midst of the new universe, the new earth, and then it's going to serve as the, the capital city of eternity. Also, it's interesting, the very words that God chooses here, it says that the city is pictured as a bride. A bride, and it contains this bride imagery here. And so this city is is kind of taking on the character of a bride. Well, you need to think about a bride for a moment to understand what God's saying. One of the things we need to understand is that this moment is the final stage of the marriage ceremony. The church is called the Bride of Christ. So this is kind of like that final stage of the marriage ceremony. And uh, you, know, you know what usually happens at, at a wedding right at the end. Whoever is uh, performing the wedding says, okay, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, you, you, you know, you just kiss each other, right? And so that, that's kind of like the consummation. And, you know, they all, everybody's, you know, cheering or happy or crying. And, and they walk down the aisle and, and their husband and wife, right? Well, that's, this is the final stage of the, the marriage ceremony. It's the final stage, by the way, it's corresponding to the eternal state. John saw this bride adorned for her husband. Why? Because it's the time for the consummation. And the word adorned is interesting here as well, in verse 2, because it says that, that uh, this... City is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The word adorned there means to order. It means to arrange. It's not a haphazard uh, thing here. It's not a, uh, you know, God has spent a lot of time and thought on this. It is ordered. It is arranged. In other words, what he's saying, the bride has become appropriately ordered in all of her beauty. It's perfect. By the way, we also need to mention here that, yes, the church is the bride of Christ. But at, at this point in Revelation, the bride concept expands to not, uh, or I should say, to include not just only the church, which started in Acts chapter 2, but it's, it's all redeemed people. All redeemed people from, from all time. And they're going to live forever in that eternal city. It's not just for the church. But look at verse 3. Because in verse 3 we see the supreme reality of the new heaven and the new earth, the supreme reality is, look at verse 3, I, that's John, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the supreme reality of heaven. Let me put it this way for you. I put a a blank line on the screen there for you. Fill in the blank. What would you put? The supreme glory and joy of heaven is... Should, the answer should be the very person of God. That should be your answer. Now, I will confess to you, um, it wasn't that long ago I would have written something else on that line. You know, I, I, you, some people focus on the streets of gold or you know, the, this, you know, the cool tree that has lots of different fruit on it. Or, you know, hey, yeah, I'm looking for my mansion or you know, whatever, okay, or you know, I can't wait till I get to fly. No sin. You know, you know, people think about all sorts of stuff, but that's not the supreme reality of heaven. At least not according to verse 3. And notice it's this unknown loud voice that's making this very important announcement, which uh, probably an angel. Can't say for sure, but I think it's probably an angel. And so this very important announcement comes in verse 3. Very important announcement. It's a loud voice, John says. He hears this loud voice. And notice where it's coming from. From the throne. And what's it saying? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There's some interesting words if, you're, if you look at this passage closely and kind of dig in. Uh, there's dwelling place. Dwelling place. Uh, Some Bibles say tabernacle or tent. Uh, I've even got a footnote at the bottom of my Bible here next to dwelling place. It says tabernacle. Now why would it say that? Well, tabernacle or tent is a dwelling place. (laughs) The idea here is that uh, people who, many people who lived in tents at this time period in the Middle East, you know, God saying, hey, I will pitch my tent among my people next to you. No longer will I be far off. No longer will I be distant. I mean, like, like God was, uh, remember in the wilderness, there was another tent, wasn't there? The Israelites had to camp around that, that tabernacle there in the wilderness, and God, God's special presence was there in the Holy of Holies, and only one person could go in one time a year. So God was distant. God's no longer distant here. He's among his people. He's, he's camped out there with you. And so the amazing reality of Matthew 5, verse 8, is actually coming to pass here. And Matthew 5, 8 says that the pure in heart shall see God. By the way, it's only the pure in heart who see God. And so his presence, we see here, is going to permeate heaven. It's, it's not going to be confined to one little place. He's, he, of course, he's everywhere. And everyone will see him. And this is a, a wonderful truth. It's, it's really mind-boggling. In fact, it's so mind-boggling that this heavenly voice has to repeat it several ways for us here in verse 3. So what is it going to be like to live in God's glorious presence in heaven? What, what is that actually going to be like? Well, let me give you a few things to think about here. Number one, believers will enjoy fellowship with God. All believers will enjoy fellowship with God. At the moment, that's not really possible. Not, not at least to, to the extent we see here, anyway. Uh, at the moment, we are imperfect. We, uh, sin hinders our fellowship with God. Uh, in fact, the Bible says that because of sin, uh, God will not hear us. Even our prayers are not heard when we are living in unrepentant sin. But it says here that one, this, this day is coming, that, that the fellowship with God will be full, it will be complete, it will be unlimited. I mean, just think about some, sometimes in our lives, at, okay, I'll talk about me for a moment, okay? Sometimes in my life, I get to enjoy fellowship and communion with God. It's awesome. There, there's nothing greater than that. No, no person, not even my own lovely wife, can compare with that fellowship and communion with God. And it should be the same with you. It's, 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 
I, I can't even describe it really with words. Those moments in my life where it's just me and God, and I, I don't really care about anything else. But then sin enters my life and destroys that, that wonderful communion and fellowship with God. But here we have a time when there, there is no sin, and, and your, your, your whole flesh is gone. There's no sin nature, that, that, no indwelling sin. And so you can have full, complete, unlimited access to God. It, it, there, there's no barriers at all. That's what it's talking about here. Number two, believers will see God as he is. Well, that's what 1 John 3, verse 2 talks about. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. I hope you're looking forward to that day. You will get to see God as he really is. No, no veil. The veils come off. You get to see him because your sin's gone. So, so you get to see him as he is. Because you've been made like Jesus Christ. An unveiled view of God is, of course, impossible for us at the moment. Uh, we, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe you want to be like Moses. You know, Moses wanted to see God too. He wanted to see God, and God says, no, Moses, you can't handle that. No, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock here. You'll see kind of like the passing part train of my glory, and even that was, was more than the, the children of Israel can handle, because Moses comes down off the mountain. Moses is just glowing, and they say, please, Moses, put a veil. We can't handle this. Moses wanted to see God, but God knew he couldn't handle that. But there is coming a day when we can. So even the saints in glory are not going to be able to fully comprehend the infinite majesty of God. Okay? If they did, then they would be God. Okay? God's incomprehensible. And so uh, we, we read earlier from, uh, from 2 Corinthians 5. But Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 1, a, a kind of a similar thought, that he, he desired to depart this earth from his, his, his present body and, and to be with Christ. Why did, why did he want to do that? Because he said it's far better. To be with Christ is far better. Just think about that for a moment. He was doing all kinds of wonderful things, which I would love to do. Starting churches, writing scripture, just to name a few. He traveled much of the known world at that time. But he says to depart, is to be with Christ is far better. Some of you know who Fanny Crosby is. She's written thousands of hymns. Um, one of my favorites is My Savior, first of all. And remember, Fanny Crosby was blind at uh, much of her life, particularly during the time when she's writing hymns. And so you have to keep this in mind as, as you listen to the words of the song, My Savior, first of all. Listen to what Fanny Crosby says. She says this, When my life's work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white, He will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages I shall mingle with delight, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. So when she died, that wish came true. She departed from this world, and those blind eyes were made perfect, and she, she saw her Savior. Well, let's move on to number three. Believers will worship God. That's what verse three says. We'll worship God. And this is something you see throughout the book of Revelation. By the way, the full title of the book of Revelation, in case you don't know this, is... The revelation, singular, not revelations, revelation, 
of who? Of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That comes from chapter 1. And, and throughout this wonderful book, this revelation of Jesus Christ, we see what's going on. There, there's a lot of worship going on here, right? We get a glimpse of heaven, particularly in, in all oh, those wonderful chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 7, even, even going on to the chapter 11 and, and uh, also chapter 19. The redeemed, those who have been bought back from the slave market of sin, and the angels as well, they're there worshiping God, the Father, and the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ. So my friend, you will one day worship God in heaven if you are a part of the redeemed. Number four, believers will serve God. Believers will serve God. It says in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Now this idea, we see God and, and, and his people there together in heaven, but this idea is, is again seen in many different places of Scripture. For example, if you were to turn to uh, another portion of Scripture in chapter 7, it says that, that the saints in heaven serve God day and night in his temple. This is something that, that is a, just a part of heaven. It's a serving of God. Number five, the Lord will serve believers. We just we, we saw that idea, that concept here in verse three. The Lord's going to serve believers. The one who created us, the one who created the entire universe, will serve believers. Well, let's move on to the changes. There are some changes that are mentioned starting here in verse 4. Verse 4 mentions that he, that's God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who, who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Let's stop there. So, heaven's a different place. In fact, it's, it's so different from our, our present world that God uses several negatives. He, he uses negatives here to help us to understand what the new heaven and new earth will be like. So what are these changes? Number one, we see here in verse 4 that God will wipe away every tear from believers' eyes, from Christians' eyes. Now, there's some, there's some weird stuff out there, okay? I'll just tell you that. I mean, there are some people who imagine that, uh, you know, people are going to be standing before God's throne, and, and they're just going to be weeping in heaven as, they, as God reads out the record of their sins for everybody in heaven to see. And I've even, I've even heard you know, very emotional sermons before. You know, God's going to have this huge screen, and He's going to show every time you lied, and every time you, you sinned, you stole something, and, and, and you committed adultery in your mind, and so forth, God's going to show it to everybody in heaven, and you're just going to stand there embarrassed, weeping and crying, and God's going to have to wipe away your tears. Really? Well, that can't be true because Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, you will be in heaven. And God says there's no condemnation. The, the, the bema or the judgment seat of Christ is not about condemnation. It's a time of reward. God gives out rewards. That's what it's all about. And so what this verse tells us is there's an absence of anything that deals with, with uh, sadness or disappointment or pain or any tears of misfortune or uh, tears of remorse or tears of regret or tears for any other reason you can think of. It's absent. That's the point. It's, it's non-existent in heaven. Number two, 
God says there will no longer be any death. No more death. The great passage on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians says that death is swallowed up in victory. Revelation 20 mentions that the death, even death itself, will be cast into the lake of fire. It's gone. So just as it was in Genesis 1 and 2, death is non-existent. Okay? You realize in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, God made everything perfect. There was no death. Death is a result of sin. That's the curse of sin. Right? Animals didn't eat each other. Nothing, people didn't die. It was all perfect in the beginning. God's going to restore that. There will no longer be death. Number three, there will not be any mourning or sorrow or crying in heaven. The idea of uh, sorrow is, is typically viewed as something that's inward. Whereas crying, of course, you know, we typically see crying, the tears coming out. It's outward. And God's saying that one day, both the inward and the outward is going to be gone. And how can that be? Well, it's, it's because of Jesus Christ. If you look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, it says, on the screen there, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So that's why in heaven, that's gone, because Christ bore that when he died on the cross. Number four, there will be no more pain. No more pain. So those of you who experience pain in your body, just think about this. Just think about it. This is wonderful, isn't it? No more pain. No more arthritis. No more headaches. You won't have to go see a chiropractor or a physiotherapist or a GP or any other kind of doctor or any of that sort of thing, right? The, the knees are not going to creak, make noises. You know, you, you'll never have to have surgery or anything. None of that sort of stuff. You, you know, you can go on a bike ride in heaven and uh, you don't have to rub your, your muscles with that smelly stuff. You know, you don't have to do any of that because there's no, no pain in heaven. It's gone. Well, verse 6, the end of verse 6, starting there, starts to give us the residence of the new heaven and the new earth. Who, who actually lives here? Who gets to go to this wonderful place? And there's two descriptive phrases here that reveal for us who, who get to live in the new heaven and the new earth. All right, look at the end of verse 6. We already read it earlier, but the end of verse 6 says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's stop there, because verse 8 starts to get into those who don't get to make it into heaven. But let's look, who, who makes it into heaven? How do you get to go to this wonderful place? Well, number one, a citizen of heaven is described as one who thirsts. One who thirsts. That phrase there, the idea of thirsting, signifies those who actually recognize they have need. They are spiritually needy. That's why they're thirsting. This has nothing to do with the the physical thirst that you and I experience every day. Uh, It's the idea of Matthew 5, 6. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Not water. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. So those who will enter heaven are those who are dissatisfied with their hopelessly lost condition. And and they're craving God's righteousness, which can only be imputed to you through Christ. It's the idea of Psalm 42, verse 1, which says, As a deer longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So the promise to earnest seekers is that their thirst will be satisfied. It's going to be satisfied. Jesus said so, and again, he's, he's, he's talking symbolically here of salvation or eternal life in John 4. He, here's what he says in John 4, verse 13. Uh, Jesus, remember, he was speaking to that Samaritan woman. They were at the well, 
and he uses the physical to lead her to the spiritual, and he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That's the physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the water Jesus is talking about there is eternal life. It's salvation. Those who thirst for that, those who are passionately seeking salvation are the ones who enter heaven. My friend, if you've never passionately sought eternal life, if you've never passionately sought salvation in Christ's righteousness, then you're not going to heaven. You will not be in heaven. You have to passionately seek this. You have to do what Matthew 5, 6 talks about. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like you're starving to death and you're dying of thirst. Recognizing you, have, you are hopelessly lost because you've broken God's laws and you stand condemned before this holy God. And at judgment day, you have nothing to do except take the judgment. But if you're trusting in Christ, then the penalty's been paid for. So the citizen of heaven is described as one who thirsts for eternal life, for salvation. Number two, heaven belongs to the one who overcomes. We see that concept here in verse 7. An overcomer is one who exercises saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not faith in yourself or your whatever. Again, we see this concept throughout Scripture. For example, in 1 John 5, verse 4, it says, For everyone who has been born of God, or saved, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Notice, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so the promise to the overcomer is that he or she will inherit these things. They'll be obtained. We have an inheritance here. Notice God says it's something that's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it will not fade away because it's reserved in heaven for you. That's what Scripture says. Now in verse 7, we got some wonderful promises here. Just take a look at them for a moment. We have the wonderful promise here that the one who overcomes, who conquers, well, that person's the one who gets to see God. And he will be with God. And notice God says, um, the one who overcomes will be my son. Now sons, they were the ones who received all the the wonderful inheritance and, and the rights and the privileges that came with that. And God's saying, even you who are females will be God's son. And I will be with your God. Well, not everybody gets to go to heaven, unlike what the universalists believe. Uh, Sadly, there are some universalists out there who think everybody eventually makes it to heaven. Uh, There are some who think there's some some place that people go before they go to heaven. Uh, You know, they get to to suffer some, some minor torment, but eventually even they get to go to heaven. And then there's some who think, okay, there's, if you're good enough, you go directly to heaven. If you're a bad person, you have to suffer some torments, and eventually even they get to heaven. But that's not what God says. Uh, you will not find the, the concept of a purgatory or any, any intermediate, inter, you know, middle state, if you want to call it that. We have, what we have here, starting in verse 8, are outcasts from the new heaven and the new earth. These are outcasts. Look what God says in verse Eight, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's just think about this for a moment. What, what is God talking about here? It's interestingly, the first one that God mentions there is the cowardly. The cowardly. Now, this is not talking about the guy who's in battle and, you know, bombs are going off around him and he's, he's hiding in the foxhole because he doesn't like all these loud noises and, you know, explosions going on around him. That's not what God's talking about here. These are people who, 
lack spiritual endurance. These are the people who fall away from the faith when, when they, they receive a little bit of opposition. They're, they're challenged, you know, maybe a workmate comes up and says, man, why do you go to church? Or whatever, you know. Well, Jesus described these kind of people in the parable of the soils. Look what he says here in Matthew 13. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the cowardly that God's talking about here in verse 8. Okay? God also mentions the faithless. The faithless here is the unbelieving. These are people who are actually lacking saving faith. They're lacking saving faith. They're disloyal to God. Therefore, they are excluded from heaven. The abominable won't make it. These are, these are ones who are vile, polluted, detestable, holy into evil. Murderers don't make it either, by the way. And by the way, a murderer is, is, is not someone who just commits one murder. Okay? Uh, Jesus Christ said you can murder in your mind. You can hate someone, and that is murder. I mean, God says this is someone who, 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 who's in, it's, it's a lifestyle, okay? Because even in Scripture we have people who are murderers, but yet they're in heaven, the Apostle Paul being one of them. David was a murderer. You will see those people in heaven. But the difference is they, they didn't remain in that lifestyle. They repented of their sin, and they trusted in Christ. But the next one we see here is those who are sexually immoral. I don't think we need to explain that one, do we? Okay, again, this is a lifestyle. It's not a one-off thing. Uh, this is something that can be repented of. It's a sin that can be confessed and forgiven. But God says sorcerers will not be in heaven. And this is an interesting word. The Greek word here for sorcerers is pharmakos. Sound familiar? Pharmakos. We get the English word pharmacy or pharmaceuticals, right? You guys know what those things are. In other words, drugs, right? All right. The, the idea here, we get the pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, deriving from this Greek word from pharmakos. So don't go around and, and go, don't, don't go and tell your pharmacist, hey, did you know you're a sorcerer? Don't, please don't do that. Uh, but, but the idea here is we're, we're talking about people, particularly people in the occult religion, they would often use these mind-altering drugs uh, you know, to get people to see and do lots of weird stuff. Right? You know, take them on that high, you know, on, that, on that trip. You know, they've been doing this stuff for a long time. Right? This is the kind of people God's talking about here. It's a, it's a lifestyle. Again, it's not a one-off. But God says idolaters won't be in heaven. People who think that... Uh, you know, there's other things worthy of worship besides the one true God. Liars, no, that one's interesting. <laughs> if, you don't think, if you don't think any of the others fit you, we're all liars. We've all lied at some point in our life, and so if you've lied, what does that make you? It makes you a liar. But what we're talking about here, again, is not a one-off. We're talking about something that characterizes your life. It's, it's, it's continuous. It's who you are. And God says, these people will not enter the heavenly city. Their part, God says, instead will be in the lake of fire. So, in contrast to eternal bliss, they're going to suffer eternal torment. Well, that's what God says. Do you believe that? God says that, not me. God says, not everybody's going to heaven. There are some people who will suffer forever in the lake of fire. Jesus said there is a broad way that leads to destruction and few, you know, and, and there's a narrow way. There's a, that narrow gate, and he says few will find that. So the new heaven and the new earth, they're awaiting you if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ. But my friend, I have to tell you this. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, there is a final hell that awaits all resurrected unbelievers. It's called the lake of fire. For believers, 
this place will be a universe of eternal happiness. For the unbeliever, though, it's, it's the exact opposite. It's, it's a terrifying place of unbelievable torment and suffering and unrelieved misery. And so here's the reality, my friend. The choices you and I make in this life make an eternity of difference. The choices you and I make in this life determine in which of those two realms you will live forever. Your soul lives forever. Okay, When your body dies... You have a part, that the part that is you lives forever. That soul will not die. So my friends, may God enable you to make the right choice. Even faith is a gift of God. Even faith is a gift of God. So may we, may we even come to God and pray that God would grant us the gift of repentance. Repentance leading to eternal life. So if you've never done that, today can be the day you do that. My friend, if, if you have, if you have, if you, if you have the glorious hope that heaven is your home and, and it's your future, it's where you will live forever, then do what Colossians 3.2 says. Set your affection on things above, not on the earth. If heaven is your home, don't live like this temporary world is your eternal home. For example, think about it this way. If you knew your house was going to burn down tomorrow, would you bother painting all the walls and putting new carpet in it? Would you? You'd say, man, that guy's an idiot. He's painting his walls, he's putting new carpet in, he's, you know, he's spending lots and heaps of money and time, and the house is going to be down tomorrow. What's the point in that? That's stupid. We do the same. <laughs> Right, I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, you know, waste your life while you're here on earth. That's not what I'm saying. But use it wisely, okay? Recognize this earth we live on is temporary. Your body is temporary. Okay? Your car is temporary. Your house is temporary. Everything is temporary at the moment except for your soul and the Word of God. That's permanent. Live for what is eternal. Set your affection on that. Well, may God enable us to make the right choice.